Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. And today we have Maria Eisma with us. Marie is a mental health social worker. Marie, can you hear us and see us? Yes, I certainly can. Hello. Hello, Marie. So I wanted to start things off by asking you, what led you into your field of practice? Why did you become a mental health social worker with experience and expertise in the alcohol and other drug field? Okay. Um, so one of the things I always knew about myself, even back at school, was that um, I had this capacity to hold the space for people. Um, I always had this capacity that, you know, if there was some sort of something going on, people knew I was always a sort of soft place to kind of um, talk and I just was able to kind of really connect with people. So I often knew a lot of stuff about people long before and they'd often say, you know, I don't know how it is that I felt so comfortable talking to you about that. Um, mm. And one of the things that um, really highlighted for me was you know, without going too much into my own personal story, was um, that I had had a lot of experience with terminal illness. And one of the things that, that highlighted for me was that people were dying um, through no fault of their own, whereas people who were using substances had a choice, uh, had an opportunity to, to get their lives back on track and not actually die possibly prematurely. So that was part of my attraction to the field. Did I find that upsetting? Um, mm. No, I found it that while somebody had the capacity to change their relationships to a substance, that to me there was an offering of hope in that. Um, right. So, so I went from that. It, you find sorry? hope in you find hope in your field. I do. I I do. I think um, you know, and I, I really would love to. Um, I remember when I first got to meet with you. Um, Fergal, probably about three years ago, you gave me a beautiful story of how you landed in the sector um, and, you know, even talking about hope because I think this kind of leads really nicely into that. Mm. Is, it, is it safe for us to ask or for me to ask you? Yeah, um, sure. Please share because I think there's something that is on offer um, that I know certainly other people who might be in the field, other people who might be just wanting to dip their toes in, um, it's the richness of the experiences that, you've also got that I think is worth circulating. So please, I'd love to hear about your hole-in-one. So, yeah, I, I use the allegory of hole-in-one because, because it was my first time that I'd ever actually treated someone with substance use disorder and they got better. So uh, it was a 25-year-old gentleman who was brought in to see me by his mother and his mother was in tears and it was almost as if, you know, I was his last hope. She actually offered me uh, extra money to, to, so that I could work harder to help her son. And I said to her, I, you know, you don't have to pay me any extra. You know, I'm, I'm employed by an organization to help you and I'll help you as much as I can. So I, I started this gentleman on a drug called Subutex, which, was, which is an old opioid replacement therapy. And within a week, he'd stopped using heroin within three months he was moved in back, back in with his parents he was helping his father out in the home business and then within six months he was working and paying taxes 
And that was my first ever experience of using the drug Subutex. And I thought, well, this is easy. So why isn't everyone on Subutex and why doesn't it, what, what's so hard about drug addiction? What do you think about that, Marie? What is so hard about drug addiction? Look, I think it's the fact that, I, and it was interesting, I, was, I do a lot of clinical supervision in the field for um, people in the AOD sector. And mm. I think what one of the, the, the things that people struggle with is that clients have this, I, I use it a, a, the word of victory, when they either cut down their use or for some people their goal is, you know, abstinence and um, remaining sober. And all it takes is a slip or a, a wobbly moment and someone... I think there's a couple of things that go on. One is the sense of, um, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to get out of this this cycle, this vortex. Um, people lose the hope. Um, people have a – they might sit there and say, and a lot of people will just not come in for, for therapy because they're like, I'm so ashamed, I feel so disappointed, I've let myself down, I've let the treating team down, I've let my doctor down. Um, and then they kind of go into this kind of self-punishment and self-persecution you know, um, that only – spirals them back even further into their use whereas what I always try to make sure people know is that there are going to be slips you know mm. I think we need to understand that it's you know it's a chronic um it can be chronic yeah. um with with lots of peaks and troughs and ups mm. and downs and but the the sense of being demoralized every time someone loses their footing and this the self-hatred and the shame and um and I think that's something that I'm really really conscious of but what they seem to do is they feel like it's such a an indictment on them as a person um and then the the feelings of just becoming despairing and not realizing that it's the it's the nature of the of the use do you can you relate to that though oh totally i mean i, I think it's really important to make this point that that addiction is a chronic relapsing illness of the brain so it's not a moral choice it's not a moral failing it is a disease and like any other chronic disease, you have uh, uh, relapses. So, you know, when, when people do relapse with their substance use, it's not an opportunity to punish or to castigate. It's an opportunity to understand what went wrong and mm. what can be changed for the future. What do you think yeah. about that? Absolutely. Um, I don't know whether this is a common thing that you've noticed, but sometimes people have these these victories and they've got, you know, um, so many months where they've they really feel like they've got their drug use either in control mm. or they're not using at all. Mm. And then we try to bring up the subject of relapse prevention. Mm. And um, I've seen clients flinch. I've heard you can see the, the, the level of distress going up. You can mm. see them sometimes starting to get um, anxious and um, edgy and sometimes they'll I don't know whether you've actually had clients say this to you but I've certainly had them say to me what do you think I'm gonna do you think I'm gonna slip up do you think I'm gonna stuff up don't yeah. you hold faith for me and it's yeah. you know I was I was um, only talking about this yesterday about as workers sometimes we hold and we invite our clients into a into a journey of the same thing where we hold you know um um, where we have the hindsight to understand exactly, you know, how a, a slip might happen, how we have the insight yeah. to know, you know, why it's all going on, and the foresight to be able to like to be able to predict um, mm. when we're going to be in rocky terrain. 
Um, can you relate? Have you seen clients get all yeah. kind of fidgety when you bring up yeah. the potential for relapse? It's almost as if the, discussing the potential for relapse <clears throat> has the ability to trigger a relapse. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and there is a fear of acknowledging the potential for relapse. Um, you know, I, I sometimes get asked, so Doc, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of my first detox. You, are you trying to tell me this is all a waste of time? And yes. I, I think, it's, it, you know, there, there's, a, there's a palpable disappointment, isn't there? Yeah, oh, definitely. Mm. Absolutely. And a lot of um, investment goes into thinking that just because someone's landed their first foot in an actual, you know, withdrawal program, yeah. that, that's, that's, that they're, they're on their, they're on their um, road and that there's not going to be any bumps or they're going to end up down the side streets again. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's that, yeah, it's, it's that holding that balance between yeah being fully informed and at the same time holding the hope and not robbing them of the hope. Yeah, and not being too nihilistic. It's almost as if we have to hope for the best but plan for the worst. Oh, look, absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's in the delivery around, I mean, I don't, do you use a lot of metaphors when you work with clients? I use them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Um, and I just think that some clients can really, really relate to, to the use of metaphors. So what metaphors do you use? I use, um, you know, metaphors about lighthouses sort of in the ocean that we know mm -hmm. that they're there to kind of help direct and guide. That mm -hmm. um, I, I use a lot of what I call use of myself in the work. Like I'll sometimes say to a client, look, you know, I feel like I would be robbing you of some like travel companion, travel guide. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. I'll say, look, you know, I feel like I owe you a, you know, that I would be doing you a disservice if we don't yeah. at least, you know, mm -hmm. Can we shift from the perspective, hey, let's honour the the, um, the dividends, let's honour the space you're in, let's honour the goals and all yeah. of that. But I would be short, you know, I'd be short changing you if I don't invite you to move the binoculars sort of up the, up the stream a little bit and just mm. to potentially see where some of the rips, some of the tides, some of the, um, you know, the rockiness could actually be. What ones do you use? So I, I talk about lying in the gutter and, and the difference between uh, treatment success and treatment failure is that people who are lying face down in the gutter are undergoing or, or, or experiencing treatment failure, whereas people who are lying in the gutter facing up to the stars are, are ones who are uh, you know, having a, a more positive outlook, a more realistic outlook and are more likely to succeed. But that then brings me on to the next point. You know, what are what are our definitions of success? What are our definitions of treatment recovery? You know, you know it, yeah. I think it's journey specific and I think it's time specific. Oh, very much. I mean, I remember um, in the withdrawal unit, we would have like, you know, like clients would have, you know, files this thick, 20 mm. different admissions from mm. um, going through. And, and I have long wondered... Um, what it is that what is it that makes the twenty first um, detox followed by rehab work yeah. versus the nineteen that didn't? And I, yeah. you know, I think this this is just so. Um, look, I mean, how you how you would ever be able to do a research on that? I think is, you know, a bit amazing because I think there's so many variables. I think there's so many different um, things that interplay. But in in answer to your question about what does define you know what does how do we define success? Um, yeah. You know, I, I guess for me, I'm looking at things like, um, 
returning to functional, you know, like the activities of daily living, community mm -hmm. activities of daily living, domestic mm -hmm. activities of daily living, um, mm -hmm. functional, relational, um, you know, not everyone has to go off and get married and have children, but can they, yeah. you know, can they, can they be in the pro uh, proximity or presence of other people? Can they have deep and meaningful connections with somebody else? Um, yeah. Can they possibly be connected back with the families that they came from? Sometimes families are so treacherous that they're actually part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, can they, if, if, the, um, if the families in which they came from um, are so detrimental, can they have what I call a soul family? Can they at least have another tribe or another sense of community? Um, you know, so purposeful and meaningful employment. Absolutely. Re with society. I, I also take that one step further. One of my definitions of mm. treatment success is paying taxes. Well, there you go. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, um, and look, I've seen... You know, I've seen people who have got, you know, 20 years where they haven't used or they've celebrated. I mean, I remember, you know, some people are so indebted to programs like NA or AA or um, other programs that, you know, like um, advocate for sobriety. Yeah, advocate, you know, for sobriety. Yeah. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, is it possible that people have then got addicted to the or they've substituted their addiction for the the dynamics within a group. But is that and so I, harmful? Well, that's I've I've brought up the same thing. To me personally, um, they're probably not going to be dying because of a dodgy liver. Um, their their families are probably or those around them. Um, I I don't take a moral, um, you know, I don't take a, a, an axe to that sort of stuff because to me they're back having meaningful, purposeful connections. Using your terms, they're paying tax because they're working again. Yeah. Um, and I, I will never forget, someone said to me once that, you know, she had gone through so many uh, admissions uh, for amphetamine use and she felt really annoyed because no one in her journey ever mentioned 12-step programs to her really? until such a point that she had already gone through being able to have a, she'd gone past the point of being able to have a child. And I'll never forget, she got really angry because she said all it would have taken is one, one therapist, one drug and alcohol counsellor, one doctor out there to have told me that that was a possibility. Mm -hmm. And I, I remembered taking that in in my early years of, of working in the field where it was like, you know, it's like if someone goes into a, into a bistro and there's a whole range of food that's on offer. You know, if you go to those places that offers a bit of Indian, a bit of Chinese, a bit of Italian, a bit of something else, it's not my job to withhold what's on offer. It is yeah. really up to the client to select. And, and one might really suit a purpose at one point. Mm. Um, and that may then go through its cycle and that may no longer be where the person's needs are getting met. They might need to look upstream for something else. And that's absolutely mm. okay. Um, yeah. Can you relate to that though? Yeah, I, I think one solution does not fit all. And I Definitely. think there is a, a role for multiple different types of interventions for for the management and of substance use disorder. But I, I wanted to just uh, go back to a point. We've discussed what I would describe as the endpoints of treatment. So for you, it's it's integration back into society, and for me, it's paying taxes. But that <laughs> could be the Mount Everest. That could be the summit of Mount Everest. And you have a, a poor, suffering soul who's. Who's, who's, who's suffering under substance use disorder at the very base? How do you define treatment success 
on their journey? So I guess one of the things that uh, in my early days I, I came to sort of understand, so I'm trained as a, in family therapy as well. So one of the things that um, a, a really good clinical supervisor once said to me was around our human capacity to soothe ourselves, to self-soothe. And the, the golden word in all of this is the word self. So the capacity to self-soothe means the ability to do something for self. That is, you know, how many times we see people who are having a wobbly moment and the first thing they want to do is pick up the phone or, um, you know, I feel a bit edgy, I'll quickly run off to the casino or I feel a bit edgy, I'll quickly go and grab, you know, see if I can find out who's dealing at the moment. Mm. So that capacity to be able to take their own body out of, the flight, flight response or, you know, um, hyper arousal. And, you know, it, it really, the words that still echo in my head to this day from my very wise supervisor was said, you know, who said to me, the biggest gift we can ever give ourselves and ultimately our children is the capacity to learn to self-soothe. And I think when we're dealing with addictions, that capacity to self-soothe is a moment by moment um, proposition. So, you know, when we hear the terms um, like, um, you know, it's it's a minute by minute, it's an hour by hour, it's a day by day proposition, mm. you know, I think it's actually about not getting too far ahead and actually just honouring, you know, and checking back in with self in these increments of time. So, yes, it might, you know, talking about Mount Everest, um, that's the the biggest, that's probably the panacea, That like that's huge. Mm. Um but, you know, can the small little victories be each and yeah. every single time somebody learns something about themselves? You know, even yeah. if somebody, you know, changes direction, they may have mm. come so close. Or even if they did have a slip and scored mm. or got drunk or did that, the capacity mm. to then invite self-reflection um, and go, what was going on? Had I not been eating properly? Had I not mm. been attending my counselling sessions, had I not been doing some sort of meditation, some sort of relaxation, had I, had I cancelled my gym membership, um, mm. had I started eat, eating a whole lot of processed food, did I start to indulge in far too much coffee? Um, all of those small little things are the things that will will help reorientate the process. Can you? Does that uh, make sense? Yeah, it makes sense to me. But I would also add that for me, the journey also involves a concept of harm reduction. So mm. using less, attending therapies, having harm reduction measures like needle exchange programs mm. or safe injecting techniques or having naloxone. These are all other milestones in somebody's journey to recovery, which I think have to be celebrated. So Absolutely. it's not just the top of Mount Everest, which is engagement and taxes. There are so many other milestones for me that, that mean treatment success. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if somebody just decides to cut their use down from, um, you know, uh, using every day down to, you know, once or twice a week, I mean, yeah. even the, it's almost like a, it's an internal high five to the body for a start because we know we're not taxing the body. If somebody elects to start to um, utilise, um, safer injecting methods. Well, it might be a, something that their future self is actually going to high five themselves for, yeah. you know, yeah. because they're possibly not going to end up with some sort of nasty hepatitis, you know, hepatitis C or something yeah. like that. So I absolutely completely agree with you. You know, yeah. if somebody uh, makes a choice to go on um, pharmacotherapy, meaning that they're not spending day in day out on the on the hunt or on the prowl for using. Mm. Um, 
that in itself, I think, is a is a big big victory, yeah. because I was, I've actually really thought about the use of um, time and and what that means. You know, I know when I worked with a lot of my clients who had trauma backgrounds, it was the ultimate in um, activity scheduling: waking up in the morning, working out who'd just been done by the cops the night before. Um, tracking down who they could actually score for them and, and getting all creative in how they were going to actually fund, you know, what they were going to do. And I just remember that even if somebody then makes a choice to go to a doctor and, you know, potentially go on some sort of um, pharmacotherapy, that spare time in itself is a, it's it's courageous. Yes. Yeah. Because so of the distraction... You, you yeah. mentioned the future self. Mm. To what extent do you see substance misuse as a struggle between one's past self and one's future self? Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness, where do I start? God, I could, I could run a whole, you know, a whole Medicate multiple <laughs> sessions on this one. Look, you know, one of the things that I have seen so many times, I mean, I have worked with clients that have been rewarded or conditioned, for a better word, by family members who have wanted their children um, to go down certain careers, paths, go down certain um, opportunities. And a lot of it has actually been through parents trying to live vicariously through the children. Um, so when you talk about the toggle between the, the, the um, former self and the future self, sometimes a lot of it's coming from because either the person hasn't individuated, it's never been safe to individuate from the families they've come from. They're marching to the tune of somebody else's script or somebody else's um, hopes and dreams and aspirations. Um, you know, I, or that they've, they've, you know, for, I know a lot of my clients who are part of the LGBTQI community, you know, they're not even orientated in the right body, in the right gender to get around in the world. Mm. Um, you know, and so these are all really massive, um, massive, um, you know, and, and sometimes when those things get sorted out, um, because people are actually, the, the compass is, is facing north for their true self, um, the one we have actually start to feel comfortable inhabiting their own bodies mm. um, because they're not actually having an internal battle between what they think they need to be and what they essentially are. Yeah. Can you relate? So, have you seen that? Have you seen that in your work? Well, you see, I would interpret that as a lack of resilience. Um, mm. and, I, and I see at the core of most substance use disorder, a lack of resilience, which is not the fault of the patient in front of me. It's the, it's the fault of upbringing and circumstance beyond that individual's control. Very much so. Absolutely. You know, and we, only have to, we only have to look at, you know, dependency within families and we look at the codependent nature of what's gone on. I know for me, one of the biggest things that always hit home for me in, this, in, in the field is um, how many times I would work with people who would be using heroin, you know, cannabis, all of your drugs, but then we would track it and they would have a parent who had an alcohol dependency. Hmm. And it was like, yeah. um, I'm not like that person. I'm, I'm not like my dad who drank. I'm not like my mum who drank. Um, hmm. Not real. Well, I mean, the mechanism is very similar. It's just that the drug of choice is different. Hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's another issue here that, that we need to bring out, and that is the role of trauma. 
Mm. You know, one, on the one hand, people who have substance use disorder are very often exposed to substance use disorder from their parents. But mm. there's another significant cohort that have been traumatized. Very much so. I can't tell you how many of my clients um, have actually experienced um, sexual abuse. I, it's, yes. it, it, it was astonishing to me when I got into the sector how many people are actually um, survivors or victims, whatever term you want to use, or someone who has experienced a sexual trauma or mm. sexual traumas. Mm. And is it just sexual trauma or can abuse be, the, the definition of abuse be widened? Oh, no, no, absolutely more than that. That's just um, more from the, the female clients that I've worked with. Um, a lot of my male clients have also um, experienced sexual trauma. But no, anything from physical trauma, emotional abuse. And I think um, even even though it, it doesn't turn heads, I guess, with the same level of severity and, oh, my goodness, um, as physical assault and, um, and all of that, but neglect. Yes, Neglect yes, is massive yeah, no, and it's, huge. it's and it's someone, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, but you weren't physically, you know, you weren't physically beaten or, mm. um, you know, left to stand out in the rain and, and some of the most awful things that we hear when it comes to people with backgrounds in tra- with who have experienced trauma. Mm. However, the neglect, the simple, um, you know, parents that have been so busy with work, parents who have been so preoccupied with their own marital issues or addictions of their own, um, that sense of not having an existence or not being recognised um, by parents is huge. And what about conditional love? Oh, it's interesting you you say that. I was only talking about conditional love. Um, I was writing up something yesterday on, um, which will hopefully become more Medicaid sessions in the future, about conditional love. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and how in families conditional love is very much, and this is where, you know, if we're dealing with intergenerational use of, of addiction, how conditional love is very much part of the um, very, very, it's the spoke, it's the unspoken and the spoken that, you know, oh, for what? you to be, for, for the how it's transmitted. So for some parents, it's like, well, um, I, or even in codependent relationships, you know, I will continue to give you love. Um, I'm the keeper of the love, provided that you uh, don't challenge me on my drinking, you don't challenge mm. me on what I get up to, um, you essentially don't shame or embarrass me or you don't bring it up. So there's this secrecy that goes on. Um, so, yeah, and basically love is not, uh, you know, when we're talking about unconditional love, unconditional love is that where you might just see a child and they're just sitting there watching TV and you might say, Hey, you know, I just need to know you. You, you know, I love you, mm-hmm. and it's it's there's they, the child hasn't done anything to warrant it. It's just simply that they're acknowledged for their existence, for the mm-hmm. fact that they are simply being. The more that we can actually do that as parents, I think it's actually better. But unfortunately, the conditional love is well. I'm going to say I love you because you put the dishes back in the dishwasher, or I love you because you've just bought an A back on your results for your tests or your mm-hmm. exams. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really that acknowledgement that, um, yeah, the conditional stuff is is de- it's a lot. Of, so a lot of it is around decoding it. Mm. So, is it fair to blame parents? We, we, we've listed all these problems that can cause addiction or at least lead to addiction. Is it fair to just say it's the, it's mum and dad's fault? No, no, I don't. 
I don't think, you know, we can actually ever source it down to one thing. I think it is, it's multifactorial. You know, when we look at addictions and even when we look at mental illness, it's multifactorial. It can be everything from, you know, the relationship, you know, we bring in personality. We know sometimes if people are highly perfectionistic, we can look at, you know, sibling order. Sometimes if there's a high achiever in the family, another sibling down the track will go, well, I can't meet what that person is. So therefore, why bother? I'll go and become the the maverick. I'll go and become the, you know, the rebellious one in the family. Um, you know, we know that there's a lot. So there's, there's, it's just too, it's too wide and it's too big to blame families. But we do know that sometimes families can also uh, allow a thing to, con- to continue through bailing children out or, you know, um, continually, you know. Tell, tell me more about bailing. Oh, you know. Uh, where someone might say they might see that they love their child and their proof of how they love their child might be, you know, paying out $20,000 in fines that a a young person's accrued. Um, It could Mm. be, I mean, I've heard of parents um, scoring for their children. Yeah, me too. I've I've dealt with that as well, you know, that that the parents are actually buying the street drugs to facilitate their, their children's drug addiction. And yeah. the base on, on the justification for that has been harm reduction. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, how do you I've deal seen with it. That? Um, I actually do a lot of psychoeducation. I think it's really, really important. I mean, I know a lot of parents who have um, felt so guilty for how they perceived um, failing their parental duties, where perhaps they attracted a a partner say there was a marriage breakup and they attracted a, a, another partner that mm. partner ended up being a, um, a sexual perpetrator to their child and they it's almost like they've become their way of trying to alleviate their own guilt about what's played out is where they're the one they're the ones that have gone up to the bottle shop first thing at nine o'clock once it opens because mm. they feel in some way that they're trying to remedy or eradicate their feelings of guilt yeah. So a lot of people listening to this may feel quite quite angry that, that we're, what we're saying is that people with substance use disorder have, 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 have reasons that explain it beyond their immediate presentation, i.e. trauma, victimization, poor parenting. And they may say, where does personal responsibility come into this? What, what would you say to that? I think... Um... Look, there, look, there's no two ways of, about um, that personal responsibility is in there. Mm. Um, and I, I know when I work with clients, it's, 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 it's sitting with, it's a, it's a fine balance because it's almost like walking a tightrope because shaming and blaming doesn't work. Mm. At the same time, when we, when we sometimes lay things down in a, you know, um, Cult, like in a, in a socio-cultural um, dimension and we kind of at least dip in and out of each different perspective, it's kind of like laying the jigsaw piece or jigsaw pieces, um, puzzle pieces down and we start to realise that each and every one of these parts had a component into the mosaic or the or the picture that ended up yeah. there in the, in the, at, the, yeah. at the end. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I don't know that personal responsibility actually gets there while someone's beating up on themselves. Yeah. I think that yeah. only perpetuates the cycle yeah. more. And, and look, that the, being said, I've got go to on. say, look, I've not, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you, you know, um, 
you haven't had a house a house invasion, you know, um, for those poor people that have been traumatised by armed hold-ups and, you know, having woken up with a gun in their face. I mean, you know, absolutely. I know there's a there's a many a, another contrasting side to all of this or, you know, I mean, I know we all indirectly pay through, pay for the use of, pay for the impact of drug use because we're all paying through insurance premiums. We're doing all this sort of stuff. Um, so, but I, I think people can only get to self-responsibility I don't know where the calling for self-responsibility can actually lie when someone's full-on raging using a substance because you, how can you, you – the person operates here and then there's the world and then there's a buffer that operates between them. So how can, how can self-responsibility really exist when yeah. you are so up and down and up and down with your central nervous system and the neuroadaptation in the brain? I don't know how it's actually possible. I mean, what would I you say about you. it? I totally agree with you. I think the, the, the people that say that are missing one fundamental point, that addiction is a neuroadaptive process that ultimately destroys the prefrontal cortex. Yep. It reduces the patient's ability to make executive functioning decisions, make the right decisions, and make good choices. And until we realize that, we're always going to blame patients uh, with, with drug addiction. We're not going to understand that it is an, a brain illness mm. that has to be treated. And I think also that's, this is a useful segue into the following point, that the management of addiction starts off with detox, but detox is not the only thing that has to occur. Detox is the easy bit. Learning how to make good choices, learning how to live life, learning how to engage, learning how to ultimately pay taxes. That process is the vast journey that people have to uh, undergo or walk in after they have done the detox. So in a lot of respects, detox is the easy bit. It's Absolutely. the journey afterwards. It's the journey to recovery that is the hard yard. I would absolutely agree with you 100%. Uh, yeah. You know, we need to realize it's part of a bigger picture, but you know, yeah. you're right, a lot of people think that they've they've hit the um they've actually ran through the um you know, when you're running a, a sprint and you've ran through that that rope, yeah. that um yeah. ribbon thing. <laughs> no, this is this is the beginning of the actual yes. um and I yeah. I liken it to a marathon. This is not a sprint. Yeah. yeah. And you're Detox right. Detox is not the the answer. It's, it's the beginning of the answer. Absolutely. Um, and I know that like a lot of clients, for them, they're, they're ne you know, once they get past those, um, those original, you know, seven to ten days of actually, you know, weaning off or decreasing off a substance, it's, it's, it's navigating their bodies back into the real world. Um, you know, I ne I'll never forget reading a, some really good material on what um, was titled the post-acute withdrawal symptoms or post-acute, mm. the post-acute phase. So basically, you know, past those immediate aspects of withdrawal. But, you know, what does it then feel like when you walk through a shopping centre mm. sober? Yeah. You know, it's it's an, it can be frightening. It's, it's literally kind of um, habituating yourself back or, or in some ways, um, you know, desensitizing yourself back to the things that everybody else just takes for granted. And that's what I don't know that, you know, because of the wiring with the central nervous system, you know, and all of that sort of stuff, it's like I've had clients who I liken it to when I've had clients who have been in prison for a long time and then they come out and, mm. you know, I'll never forget I had a client who came back out and said, 
where's oh you know these would be like the 013 these would be a number you could ring telstra and, and get somebody's number and he goes or he came out and all of a sudden the city's changed and the bridges are changed. And it was like he'd stepped out of, you know, literally came off a spaceship and arrived yeah. back into the here and now. And yeah. his anxiety got so bad that he was, it felt like he'd been thrust into planet Earth, um, mm. that he was no, it was feeling foreign, it was feeling alien to him. He, he didn't know what to do. What did he do? Reoffended and got straight back into jail because yeah. it, the, the onslaught on the senses wasn't as great for him. And you talk about the onslaught on the senses. I mean, we, we haven't even uh, we haven't uh, we haven't touched on the issue of empaths. Mm. How do you feel that they're affected? You know, empaths are the people who can walk into a room, who can see someone who has been injured or harmed or hurt. These are the people that can't even watch the news because it triggers them, and it actually. Um, and look, there's a whole science behind, you know, empathy and, and that sort of stuff, you know, which we refer to as the mirror neuroning in the brain. But um, empaths, um, oh, there's a brilliant book that I, I encourage my clients to read, and it's called The Empath Survival Guide. It's actually written by a psychiatrist yeah. um, who was an empath. And she speaks about her own history of having used substances because she essentially, um, you know, she was an introvert. But society often really wants the extroverts. And so, you know, that ability to kind of not be able to assimilate or feel like you're okay in your own skin, um, you know, sends a lot of people scurrying into, well, I'm not okay as I am, so how do I get okay? Um, so it's often it's a, two, you know, it's a couple of prongs, but one is, you know, um, I just want to feel normal and be able to do what everyone else is doing. But um, so people might use for those reasons and the other reasons is that it basically um it buffers the 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 um stimulation coming in it's like a way mm. of kind of cocooning it's oblivion. Um, uh, oh absolutely Drugs it's, provide it's, an oblivion or, oh, or, or, or an, an anodyne from the pain of the world Oh, absolutely. It's the ultimate of escapes. Um, yeah. You know, and I know one of the other things, and I do a lot of work in this with my empaths, is emotional eating, mm. you know, and it's another way of in some ways kind of trying to anchor back down into the body. A lot of people who are who are empaths have um, emotional eating and are often overweight. Um, and, oh. not, and let's not even, yeah, so, I mean, and that, then, but you think, you know, again, taking it back to trauma, you know, there's a lot of people who I know who will deliberately um, eat to make themselves less attractive if they've got a trauma history where you know they've been sexually abused then carrying extra weight in some ways um is a is an unconscious attempt to uh make themselves less desirable to somebody who might be otherwise to predatory to a predator absolutely mm, yeah yeah so to what extent does do do families behave as either the solution to the problem or actually as the cause of the problem so sometimes in, in the work that I see with families, like, and I've, you know, family therapists often use the term, you know, triangulation. Mm -hmm. And essentially what that means is, you know, in a, in a normal relationship, say you've got uh, two parents, say, you know, for the, say just for sake of, you know, your general stereotypical family, you know, you've got a mother and a father. Mm -hmm. Now, say for argument's sake, they've got marital issues, but say both of them have, have really vowed in their marriage to you know, it could be a religious reason. Say they've made a vow that we don't, we don't separate, we don't divorce in this family. But say they've got their adolescent daughter who's going off the rails and she's using drugs. So the parents might in some ways 
want to keep by, you know, I've heard clients uh, clients say to me that their parents have offered to, um, you know, buy, set them, uh, you, you know, you just do what you're meant to do and I'll buy a unit for you. I'll buy you a sports car. I'll, um, you know, offer you something but just don't leave the family home. Um, so what this right. tends to look like is because there's an issue between mum and dad that's that's not really being let out into the open, the the adolescent child or the or the young teenager or whoever is actually part of keeping the family unit together. So the person's actually got a position. She's actually got a position description if you if you want to look at it that way. And the role that the families can sometimes have is that it, it's too destabilising for the mother and father to work things out, but if they can invest their energies by um, narrowing their focus down to the adolescent person who's who's racing off the you know off the marks with substance abuse issues, then it distracts them from the real issue. But the the so, secondary the gain is well, I get the girl is invested because she might get a sports car, but what she doesn't actually realise is she's earning it. So what you're saying is that families perpetuate substance use in their children because they're too afraid to deal with their own inner turmoil? In some instances, absolutely. And this is why, you know, in, in the longer-term rehab programs, um, you know, families or family therapy is actually sometimes part of what's really needed. I know in a lot of the private places because sometimes through unclear boundaries, remember... You know, if it in a in a say a romantic relationship, you've got a, you know, you've got a partnership going on, and one person uses but the other person doesn't. There is, you know, that person can sometimes see that that drug as an as another part of the relationship. It's like an adulterer mm-hmm. um, or a third person in the relationship. Um, but sometimes people, you know, if that person stays in that relationship, and one of the cornerstones for codependent behaviour is poor self esteem. So you've got somebody who's got poor self-esteem and then they end up attracted to somebody who momentarily buffers them because that person has actually got no sense of self, no solid sense of self. Their sense of self is highly dependent on the person that they're actually with. So that person then all of a sudden starts having, you know, substance abuse issues. They end up together. The person who's got the unhealthy self-esteem then starts to um, over-identify with the the person who's using the substances, might try to control the person, might try to... um, you know, compete for the drug um, and the other person's not willing to give it up. So they'll then make these what I call cognitive concessions for the use. They might and their self-esteem just continues to plummet and plummet and then before you know it, you've got this, you know, um, cycle of toxicity going on. Um, so until we actually look at who's actually, who's, um, who's enabling the process. Now, we know that a lot of friends, we know that a lot of family members can actually enable the process. They can be the ones that are ringing the boss in sick. Oh, look, you know, I'm just letting you know Terry's not coming into work today or Phil or Fred or Margaret's not coming in um, because, you know, she's sick or, you know, she's got gastro. Well, no, she hasn't. She's got a hangover or she's, you know, um, detoxing and feeling particularly awful. Yeah. So we've got to really look at accountability. It's not easy, is it? We're going to have to wrap up there. Thank you so much, Marie, for your expertise and your insights. It's an absolute this pleasure. This is a MedHeads production. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you again soon.